Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Okay, so the nominations are out, and I want to know, which movie are you rooting for to win Best Motion Picture? Should the award go to... Rice Boy Sleeps. Hey, Rice Boy! Loser! Rice Boy! Rice Boy! Don't call me that! Why the other kids not in trouble? They be racist to him every day. Babysitter. Falcon Lake. Brother. I'm Aisha. I know your brother, Francis. Everyone knows him. Viking. Or will it be Summer with Hope? I honestly can't pick the one that I like best because I honestly haven't seen any of them. I actually haven't even heard of any of them before I sat down to write this. You see, those are not the list of the nominees for the Oscar for Best Motion Picture. No, those are the Best Motion Picture nominees for the Canadian Screen Awards. And it seems like I'm not the only Canadian 
who has not heard of many Canadian movies. A few years ago, Telefilm Canada studied Canadian filmgoers. And what they found is that most English-speaking Canadians could not name or even recognize a Canadian-made film. They even tried to make it easy for people. They took a bunch of the biggest recent Canadian movie releases at the time, and they, and they asked people, have you heard of this one? How about that one? Well, the title that got the most recognition, only 6% of people knew what it was. If you're curious, it was a movie called The F Word. And that's kind of just how it is. Canadian films keep getting made. There are like around 100 theatrical releases every year. And Canadians just keep not watching them. English-speaking Canadians, that is. Things are quite different within Quebec. But yeah, within English-Canadian film, that is a problem. Here's another problem. You may have noticed something else about that list that I read of the best motion picture nominees. You may have noticed that a certain title was absent from it that maybe you were expecting. This is that rare year where there actually is a Canadian film that a lot of people could name, that a lot of people have actually seen. And if I had been reading the Oscar nominees for Best Motion Picture, you would hear the name of that film. And that film is Women Talking. Women Talking was, of course, directed by a Canadian, Sarah Pauly. It's based on a novel by a Canadian, Miriam Taze. That movie was even filmed in Canada, and it's doing terrifically. As I mentioned, it might win the Oscar this year for Best Picture. But it is not even eligible for a Canadian Screen Award because it was made with American money. And according to the CanCon rules, it is therefore not a Canadian film. So there you go. That's problem number two. And I would say that those are two pretty big problems. But they're also old problems. Our film and TV industry here in Canada has learned to live with those problems for decades. It's just been chugging along putting out content anyhow. Only now it's facing a new problem. Netflix and Disney Plus and Amazon and all the rest. Canadians, you see, have been cutting our subscriptions to our Canadian cable television broadcasters. And we've been switching over to American streaming services. And when we do so, we have been rapidly draining the funding base of the entire CanCon system. Because the way it works is, every time we used to pay Rogers for a cable TV bill, or Bell, or Videotron, or any of those Canadian companies for our cable TV services, well, a few pennies automatically went into the budgets of Canadian movies and television shows. That does not happen when our money goes to Netflix instead. And that is why there is now something called Bill C-11. In broad strokes, this is a piece of legislation from the Trudeau government that wants to keep the CanCon system alive for decades to come by applying those old rules that we had for Canadian cable TV broadcasters and shifting them over so they also apply to foreign streamers like Netflix. And that sounds simple enough. But is it? I mean, can you do that? Can you just take rules that were written for TV broadcasters and apply them to internet streamers? And even if you can, should you? I mean, the old system had so many problems. Are we sure that we want to just keep that going into the future? 
I mean, what is the goal here? Is the goal just to make stuff? Is it just to keep the film and TV industry alive for the sake of the jobs that it creates and the economic activity? Or is the goal, what was the initial goal, to make content that Canadians actually want to watch? And if that is the goal, if that is the problem that we're trying to solve, well, what if it's not a problem anymore? You know, Canadians might not be watching many Canadian-made movies or television shows, but we are watching Canadian content like we never have before. We're watching it on YouTube, on Instagram, on TikTok. So does that stuff count as CanCon? Should it? None of these questions are all that easy to answer, but they are all reaching a decisive turning point as this bill, Bill C-11, moves closer and closer to becoming the law. And for people who work in the industry, in TV and film, this is a bill that is going to change how everything works from now on. Our audio editor, Tristan Capicione, he was one of those people for many years. Before joining us at Canada Land, he worked as an audio professional for dozens of TV and film projects, composing scores, mixing and designing sound, you name it. Today he's going to look at this and he's going to talk to people, to the people directly affected, movie directors, producers, digital creators too. He's going to find out not just how to keep the industry going, but maybe how to fix it as well. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Shannon Furness, Will Thompson, Raymond Hawk, Adam Hotchin, Jacob Wixon, Sarah Rowe, and John. My name is John. I'm a, a semi-retired uh, information professional in Toronto, and I listen to the uh, Canada Land Podcast Network because I get fresh takes on things that the uh, regular media don't want to or aren't able to take up. It makes me go away thinking that I understand my world just a little bit better. Canadian television is obviously such a shit show. And as many people in the industry will say, it's like a total make work project. Like most Canadian television is made just so it can get made. It's like, it's, <laughs> I mean, that's just the way that it is. I mean, the government mandates a certain amount of it to be created. And so, of course, you're going to make a whole bunch of slime. This is Matt Johnson, a filmmaker who directed Blackberry, a new film starring Jay Baruchel and Glenn Howerton, telling the story about Canada's once famous smartphone company, Research in Motion. Yeah, what can I do for you? Okay, picture a cell phone and an email machine all in one thing. What do you call it? Blackberry. Huh. Try typing with your thumbs. Blackberry is a big dramatic feature with a multi-million dollar budget that stars well-known Hollywood actors. So Matt's come a long way from the first thing he directed, a micro-budget web series from 2006. Matt! Yeah? Update day! You know what we should do? We should write a song for our act with titles of Wii games. Oh. Super Mario RPG, Sonic the Hedgehog, Donkey Kong 3. Back then, the internet provided a place for young filmmakers like Matt to showcase their work, try new things, and grow audiences. It was a place to show off your calling card and try and launch yourself in the film and TV industry. And that's what Matt did. He made his first feature film, The Dirties, in 2013, and a few years later, his second feature, Operation Avalanche. 
His web series was eventually rebooted for actual TV in 2016 when Vice launched their TV channel, Viceland. Now, these films and shows are different from others you might see on TV. Matt took risks that many directors, producers, or even broadcasters might not. You see, Matt wants to make content that pushes boundaries. The Dirties is a dark comedy about some high schoolers making a movie about a high school shooting. We're planning a school shooting. You want us to kill anybody for you, or? Good luck with your shooting. Operation Avalanche, a movie about faking the moon landing filmed on location at NASA. We can't land on the moon. We can make a film that shows us going to the moon without actually doing it. See, he tricked NASA. He told them that they were film students and were making a documentary about the Apollo program. We showed up with like our 16mm cameras, dressed like we were in the 1960s, and they didn't say a thing. They were like, so what do you guys want to see? And we were like, is the place where they controlled the moon launch still here? And they were like, oh sure, yeah, we left it exactly the same. We were like, oh, cool, would you leave us in here for maybe 10, 20 minutes? And when his show was rebooted, he took some risks there too. Permission doesn't exist. You ask, like, the TTC, can we break onto the tracks? Okay, are you coming or no? I... Okay, don't get electrocuted! Yes, you actually see them and the camera person go down onto the tracks and someone in the background exclaim, what the fuck are you guys doing? He fears the reason we don't see this kind of thing in most CanCon is because of an attitude of risk aversion. I think there is a Canadian attitude in all media of unbelievable risk aversion. And that risk aversion winds up translating into legal departments and executives at every level of, of control in this country. And it expresses itself in such a way that if you are doing something that is new or is going to create work for a legal team or is going to create work for executives, something out of their ordinary routine, you'll meet resistance. That was from an interview on the Toronto International Film Festival's YouTube channel back in 2018. Oh yes, I would say that's exactly the problem. <laughs> Let me agree with myself. I can expand on this idea. Here's how you get fired working at a Canadian funding industry. You take a risk. If the risk goes bad, you're fired. And if that's the only way you can get fired, how is that culture going to turn into a place where young people can come and tell risky stories? If the only way you are going to lose your high-paying government job is by taking a risk. You cannot get fired for making bad movies. You can't get fired for making bad TV shows. A risk is, oh, maybe we should give this 20-year-old free reign and financing to make a movie where she doesn't have a script and doesn't really know what she's going to do, right? And maybe she goes and makes a movie that is, you know, God knows, lascivious about modern sex is pushing some kind of boundary that then a citizen goes and sees at a cinema and goes, the Canadian government paid for this? Oh my God, I can't believe this. And then they write their local MP and then that MP goes, uh, why did we finance this? And then the person who did needs to answer for it. This has kind of happened, by the way, a bunch of times. After the release of David Cronenberg's film Shivers in 1975, for example, there was a controversy in Parliament about film funding and creative expression with reference to Cronenberg's film specifically. They possess men, women, and children, and drive them to acts of unbelievable horror. No one is safe from them. But let's take a step back and talk about what Matt said earlier. 
like most Canadian television is made just so it can get made. It's like total make work project. And so of course, you're going to make a whole bunch of slime. What he's talking about is the CanCon system, a part of the Broadcasting Act that regulates traditional broadcasters, forcing them to show a minimum amount of Canadian content. It was last updated in 1991. The government wants Canadian television to look more Canadian, with a lot more Canadian programming and a lot fewer American soap operas and game shows. As a part of this system, the government and broadcasters must pay into funds that help support the creation of CanCon. Telefilm, which primarily funds films, and the Canada Media Fund, or CMF, which funds TV shows and things like web series as well as games. And when Matt made his first two features, he did it without help from Telefilm. Hell no, we tried. We begged them for money. If Telefilm had come in and basically given us a kind of very low amount carte blanche funding for the dirties, the budget of that movie was only like $15,000, right? So if we'd been given that, yes, it would have made our lives a lot easier, of course. But there's something about having to figure out a way to finance movies on your own that maybe changes the process of doing it. He isn't the only one with complicated feelings towards the CanCon system. Sure. Uh, my name is Andrew Chung. I am a writer, director, producer. I'm also a board member of the Racial Equity Screen Office, and I'm the co-founder of the Asian Canadian Film Alliance. In January of this year, Andrew went viral with a tweet that read, No disrespect to working Canadian filmmakers, but my perception of Canadian film is a hundred folks hiring each other, giving each other awards, and shunning folks who aren't doing anything to be one of them. Basically, high school. Someone tell me I'm wrong so I can maintain my sanity. I think it's just the general feeling of working in this industry for years that you, you just see the same names pop up over and over and over again. And there's way more people out there um, than just those, those few names that you see in the media, especially in powerful positions. Obviously, I'm not alone in this, which is why the tweet went somewhat viral, because it's a general feeling that all of us have, like, and regardless of whether we're racialized or not, right? Like, it, the, the Canadian film system is a small system. And because of that, it's, it's, you know, there's often a lot of gatekeeping that's happening. And it's like, if you're not part of that club or not trying to be a part of that club, you're often not looked at somebody of importance or somebody who can actually make good films, right? But once you enter that system, you're suddenly perceived as somebody who can make good films. Andrew didn't start in film production. Like Matt, he started by making his own indie web series. Ironically, his was called Millions. You ain't getting a cent from me. I did my job, Ronnie. Any kid can get rich today. We're gonna make a mill before 30. That's what we said. The millions, D. We're gonna get those millions. Debuting in 2014, following appearances at festivals, it cost under $100,000 to make, including $8,000 raised through a Kickstarter for a pilot. The rest of it was mostly funded by Andrew himself. I studied screenwriting. I worked in development for a couple of years where I did a lot of script reading. And then I worked in distribution as well. And then from there, I just kind of went into production cold turkey and learned hands-on without any training. I just started shooting my own material because I was restless as a creative and I decided to just uh, produce one of my own projects, which I adapted into a web series. That was like an entire education for me. He felt like the CanCon system wasn't set up to make the kind of show that he wanted to make. The material that I was making was not something at the time that anyone was going to greenlight, 
I wanted to put Asian Canadians on screen, which was non-existent at the time. I think at the time there was a show called Dragon Boys on CBC, which was like a limited series, and it was written by a white guy, and it was conceived by a white guy, and it was about Asian gangsters. A land where new world and old world collide. So you're out there acting like a samurai warrior, taking them all on single-handed. Samurais are Japanese. Like, that does not represent us, right? You immediately feel like you're a, not a part of the system. You're not included in this system. So you don't even think about it as something that you can access. Like, it's gotten so much better for people of color. Um, we have a long way to go. But Andrew pushed through and found a way to make his series work. I had applied for multiple funds before as a new filmmaker, and it was difficult, right? Because... You know, accessing public funds is not easy, for one, and, you know, it's very competitive. So, you know, I just grew frustrated as a creator. I wanted to make something. And, you know, filmmaking is one of those art forms where, you know, you're at the mercy of funding. It's not like music or, or painting where you could just kind of pick up a pencil and just start drawing. Like, you're kind of at the mercy of, do I have the money to make this? Do I have the equipment to make this? It's a very long process, the application process. And seeing any money, even when you do get accepted, takes some time. So at the time, I, I raised money through crowdfunding, and this was back in 2010, and that was pretty much when crowdfunding was born, right? And so when I heard about this new thing, I immediately thought that I could get this money to fund something within 30 days, right? So the immediacy of crowdfunding was very attractive to me as, as a very driven writer and creator and just wanting to see something happen without being at the mercy of the gatekeepers here in Canada, right? And, you know, if I didn't have that mentality, I think I would have been stuck for many, many, many years. And I think our reliance on public funds as Canadian filmmakers is probably overweighted. Full disclosure, Canadaland recently partnered with a production company called Entertainment One to make a TV docuseries based on our Thunder Bay podcast. Entertainment One has made use of the CanCon system to fund the show. Now, it is uncommon for people like Matt and Andrew to go public with their criticism of the CanCon system. The criticism itself is nothing new, but for two directors who are now a part of that system to bite the hand that feeds, that's pretty rare. I think it has to do with the fact that neither of them got CanCon help when they were first establishing themselves. They are a newer breed of filmmaker, and they know they can make it with or without a bureaucratic stamp of approval. But are they right? Is there something inherently wrong with the system? Is it only producing films and shows just for the sake of filling slots in a broadcaster's schedule? Should the CanCon system be taking bigger risks with shows? That old report I played for you a bit earlier from the last time the act was updated, well, there's actually a little bit more to it. For the private stations, there's something the government is calling an incentive system. Stations that produce more than the required hours of Canadian content would be paid a bonus. Those that don't would have to pay a penalty. A spokesman for the private station says the government may be asking too much, that the bill should be stressing quality, not quantity. They'll undoubtedly work at producing more programming. I'm not sure it's going to be more programming that Canadians are going to want to watch. Taste is subjective, so rather than discuss whether something is good or bad, we can discuss if CanCon is something people actually watch. According to the CMF's most recent annual report, English language program viewing habits show that many Canadians will watch children's and documentary programming, anywhere between 40 and 50% that is Canadian produced, but drama and variety in performing arts are far less, much closer to, say, 20%, with the remaining 80% being entirely foreign. 
It's worth noting that the CMF's metrics don't include all online streams of Canadian shows. They say that they are missing about 30% of Canadian shows that they finance on platforms like streaming services. So how do we go about making things Canadians want to watch? I think we need to embrace this let a thousand flowers bloom philosophy as opposed to we'll make very few movies and put a lot of attention on them and really try to make sure that they're great. I don't think that that is nearly as interesting in trying to finance as many young people as we possibly can because we are never going to be able to compete with Americans in terms of aesthetics. It's always going to be an uncanny valley between the actors that we get, the sets that we build and what the Americans are able to do because we just will never be able to penetrate it. And all the Canadian failures come from people who are trying to ape that style. Whereas in my opinion, all the major Canadian successes are the ones that break out of that mold and do something new. We're not really about innovation and, you know, imaginative ideas. I think historically genre work is not something we see a lot come out of Canada. And those are the things that become internationally successful, like a Squid Game, like a Stranger Things, like Canada is not producing shows like that. And we would never see a show like that come out of Canada because we're risk averse, right? You know, we're, we're not taking risks on IPs that are, you know, daring and, and, and interesting and, and innovative. And, you know, not think about what the safe option is and, and, and think about what could really put us on the map. That might also help with another big problem you hear people complain about again and again. The idea that all of our best talents leave to work in the U.S. The reason why the Canadian actors went south is because the work's not here, right? Or they were shunned. Like, you know, we mentioned Shang-Chi and like Simu's a friend of mine. And I have know very well on the inside, like the whole makings of him going from Kim's Convenience to Hollywood, right? And the way the industry here views him versus in America. You know, he experienced the same hurdles that all of us do here as a person of color, as a Canadian, you know, outsider in the system. They're kind of claiming ownership to these things that they had no involvement in producing the stardom that these Canadians, you know, have received, right? Like, we are responsible as creators to find our success in America, and then, you know, Canada comes back and says, oh, yeah, that you were one of us. And, and I think a lot of successful Canadians in America will feel like, well, you know, you never nurtured my talent. You never nurtured my growth. But now you're claiming ownership to it, as if you played a part in that success. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. 
And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. We've been talking a lot about the CanCon system, how it works and how it could be better. But arguably, that isn't really what Bill C-11, the Online Streaming Act, is about. In many ways, it's about maintaining the status quo, making sure that the system that was already in place doesn't fall apart. You see, broadcasting used to only be available to a few major networks, as well as smaller local stations. And major networks had a monopoly on what Canadians could watch, and they could sell expensive ad slots on the most popular content available, usually American shows. And buying the Canadian broadcast rights to the biggest Hollywood shows, airing them for Canadian audiences and selling those audiences to advertisers, well, for decades that was a very easy and lucrative business model for the handful of companies that held broadcast licenses. And to an extent, it still is. But in return, they had to show a few Canadian shows and contribute money to CanCon funds. But now, with the rise of video streamers on the internet, largely owned by foreign companies outside of Canada's normal regulatory purview, broadcasters have been the ones complaining. They've been lobbying the government to fix what they call a two-tiered system. Why should they have to pay into the CanCon system and be forced to air CanCon productions when their biggest competitors don't? The broadcasters and industry leaders called on the government to hold those companies accountable to the same system. On February 2nd, 2022, Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez gave them what they wanted. We're here to talk about the Online Streaming Act. Uh, this bill uh, will update our broadcasting rules to include online streamers. It will require them to contribute to the creation and availability of Canadian content. The government line has consistently been that the bill is not about caving to Rogers, Bell, and a handful of production companies. It's about making streamers promote and fund CanCon and centering Canadian voices and culture. But is that really the goal? Matt isn't so sure. I think that the deep dark secret is that most federal funding runs on the veneer of saying that they're trying to create a cultural identity when the truth is all they're trying to do is employ people. It is just a money transferring system from taxpayers to an industry that these agencies feel beholden to. The pressures on these industries are exclusively coming from middlemen, production companies, producers, etc., who are just trying to stay rich. Let's not mistake that. Like, that is who is putting parliamentary pressure on institutions like the CMF, Telefilm, etc. People who are established and are trying to maintain a level of financing. And of course that makes sense because how are like a bunch of 20 year olds who have no idea how these things work have zero political power and are not going to be able to lobby the government for them to have opportunities to develop their voices. And that is what government funding would be doing if they were sincere in 
their goal of creating a national voice. Creating a national voice? What does that even mean? What makes CanCon Canadian? If you've gone to the movies recently, you may have seen a video made by an organization called Made New, a branch of the Canada Media Fund, whose mission is to, quote, celebrate the works of Canadian creators in film, television, video games, and digital entertainment, both here and around the world. They launched a promotional campaign with video mashups of Canadian shows. Well, pitter-patter, let's get at her. Canadians. Shows like Letterkenny, Schitt's Creek, Kim's Convenience, Workin' Moms. And then they start to show a few other pieces. Stories for real people. You're the first female to direct a Pixar movie. The first Muslim superhero. The first project with all indigenous... Turning Red, Shang-Chi, Ms. Marvel, and Deadpool. Some of these things are not like the others. Shang-Chi features Canadian actor Simu Liu from Kim's Convenience. Turning Red, set in Toronto, is directed and co-written by Canadian Domi Shi. And Ms. Marvel stars Canadian actress Iman Vellani. There's also Deadpool, which stars Canadian Ryan Reynolds and is co-written by Canadian Paul Wernick and filmed in Vancouver. All were produced by Disney. Yeah, I mean, I think we've been seeing stuff like this for years where, you know, as soon as it's acknowledged by the American media, it's something we're very proud of. But yeah, I mean, those last few properties that you mentioned, it's not Canadian content. The film industry in Canada relies heavily on service productions, foreign companies, often American, that choose to film in Canada and take advantage of our talent, but also our generous tax credit system. Film tax credits, of course, are, are fundamental to the way the film industry works in Canada and the United States and many other jurisdictions around the world. This is Mark Allman, a Halifax-based producer. And the way that works is that the, uh, the government is basically saying to you, okay, if you can go out there and raise X amount of money from outside of the province and you spend it here in the province on Nova Scotian labor, Nova Scotian equipment and materials, then what happens is that we'll give you a rebate, a portion of those costs back. And so a filmmaker then is able to take the calculations, I will get X amount of tax credit. That can be a cornerstone of your financing. It allows you to go out there to the international marketplace or the national marketplace and say, I know I already have about 30-35% of my financing in place because the government will supply that rebate to me. To qualify for tax credit programs, your, quote, key creatives are evaluated on the CAVCO, or Canadian Audiovisual Certificate Office, scale. You get points for each Canadian thing you have. We have this CAVCO scale with a 10 out of 10 points, and you think of 10 out of 10, which is like, you know, writers worth two points, cinematographers worth one editors worth, you know, one point. So when a production company, Canadian or American, wants to apply for a tax credit, they have their key creatives fill out forms saying, yes, I'm a Canadian living in Ontario. Here's my information. And with enough of these forms submitted, with enough points on the scale, you can qualify for a tax credit. And so American productions avail themselves of this system all the time to pay for their films and TV shows using Canadian taxpayer funds. I mean, a lot of American productions will try and get six out of 10 points because it, it opens up, you know, financing opportunities for them. But it still means that they don't necessarily have to have a writer or a director attached, you know, but you need to have everything else basically filled by Canadians. And exactly who these productions hire does have an impact on the content. In a CBC article, Alex Levine, the president of the Writers Guild of Canada, says, quote, we have 25% of the actual work for Canadian screenwriters that we had in 2014 in terms of numbers of episodes created. 
and that without the bill, Canadians, quote, will see a world reflected back to them that is determined by studio executives in Los Angeles and not by Canadian artists, unquote. Service productions have increased dramatically in the past 10 years, over 200%. And while the jobs are good, these American productions hog filmmaking resources to the detriment of Canadian productions. As Matt told me, These American productions who come in under the guise of being a Canadian production are so big that they wind up absorbing all the local crew talent and all the local space. So... We just shot a movie about Blackberry, and every location that we tried to shoot at, whether it was in Toronto or just outside the GTA, like diners, places that you would think would be kind of easy to go and get as a location to film, have all been kind of sucked into this American Netflix, like constant production model that the prices to rent anything are like through the roof for local producers. And so it's like the side effect of opening ourselves up to American production has meant that Canadian production has been completely pushed outside of the core. Like there's no Canadian movies shooting in Toronto anymore. We've all been pushed out and we're shooting all in and around the area for way more money than it should cost us. And our crews are all working on American movies because they pay more. So this system that was meant to try to ensure and promote Canadian talent has instead just taken all of our talent, moved it onto American productions, which are disguising themselves as Canadians, while strangling the very small, low-budget Canadian stuff in a way that is so, like the best intentions often do this, will wind you up with a system that is doing the opposite of what you want. And the CAVCO system isn't perfect either. It's designed to make sure Canadians work on these projects, but there is fraud and abuse of the system. I've heard about it directly. When I was working as a film composer, I heard from friends and colleagues about American production companies looking for composers to sign on to a project as a key creative for a small fee, but the actual work would be done by other, presumably American, composers. Matt was also familiar with this practice. Same thing happens with editors. Same thing happens with writers. Like, oh my God, I'll be sent scripts where they're like, okay, we want to make this as a Canadian project. You can rewrite the script. The writer's okay with you taking the writing credit on it in order to get us CAVCO certification. It's like, and it's funny because it's not evil from the American's point of view. They're not doing anything wrong. It's like the system exists as it is. And it's so much like the tax code. You know, they set up these rules that are going to make people pay their taxes and here are the exemptions. And then you wind up creating a system where everybody just aims for the exemptions and that's the system we're in right now. And there are other problems of potential fraud with the CanCon system. Matt says that when the media company Vice was producing TV in Canada, they applied for and received funding from the CMF to produce three seasons of his show. But once the funding was provided, there was no real oversight of how that money was spent. The CMF basically gives you money so that you can make television shows and they kind of support whatever your distributor is also putting into the show. In that case, it was Vice. But the production company, Vice in this case, really is in control of all that money and they can do with it what they want. And so we had a three-season order to make Nirvana the Band the show. And when Vice closed their doors and were like, okay, we're not going to make any more shows at all. We were midway through season two and we said, oh, so I guess we'll just use the rest of that CMF money to finish season three and figure out what we'll do with it. 
And I'll never forget, I don't know who was in charge there at the time, but he was like, no, I think I'm going to use that money to do something else. And we were like, oh my God, what? <laughs> like you realize that production companies and the people who actually make these deals with the CMF have control to do more or less what they want with that money. Now, again, you'll, I, I'm sure you'll never get anybody to admit that. Right. I mean, that's a pretty controversial thing that I've just said. But I mean, I witnessed it happen. Like we didn't get that money to make our third season. And there was a huge CMF drawdown for those episodes, like a huge amount of money that where it is now, eh, who knows? Who cares? Right. I reached out to Vice for comment, but had not heard back as of press time. I spoke with Valerie Creighton, president and CEO of the Canada Media Fund, and asked her if situations like what Matt described would be possible. Well, if people want to lie and create fraud, they will find a way to do it. You can't prevent that from happening. We are aware of situations where creative individuals have been contracted on a particular show and the money has not been paid out from the show. But we are not the police on that. The only thing we can do if a situation like that arises is that gets flagged and then that production company is no longer eligible to come to the CMF. It's highly unlikely that would happen, but it's not impossible if documents were submitted and were fraudulent and the auditor supported that and it's one that, you know, didn't come into our screening process. So, I mean, we don't double audit all of the 2,000 projects that come into the CMF. But, you know, we have heard of a couple of issues like that. I've heard of two, I think, in the 16 years I've been here. There's another way that Matt said the existing film system can actually hurt the Canadian filmmakers it's supposed to be helping. We had made a deal with Lionsgate after The Dirties came out, and Lionsgate agreed to buy the American territory on The Dirties for some million-something dollars, right? That was like, oh man, amazing. And so we went to Telefilm and we're like, look, Lionsgate pre-bought our next film. We want to make it with you guys. We want to make it with Telefilm so that we can like have a slightly bigger budget. And Telefilm was like, because Lionsgate bought America, we can't finance your film. Oh God, so crazy. And then it's like, we weren't considered a Canadian movie. The Canadian Screen Awards didn't think we were a Canadian movie, all because we had financing with an American company. It's so screwed up. And even if you do qualify for Canadian funding, as Matt's new film Blackberry does, Accepting that funding can mean that you're locked into distribution requirements that hurt your chances for success and limit your options. Canadian releases and how the cinemas work here and how they require a 90-day window before things start streaming. I mean, we're going through it right now with BlackBerry, where now our movie needs to come out in Canada in April before it releases in the United States in June, simply because of the differences between our two territories and that we were forced to make this movie with a Canadian distributor. Because that's just the way the system works. Whereas if we'd been able to take this movie, say, directly to a big streamer, then we would have the entire world open to us. We'd have all these different release strategies. We could do a massive release on their platform and that would be completely fine. And the Canadian side would be taken care of because Amazon Plus Canada or whatever it's called would be our Canadian distributor. These companies are not happy when they don't get the Canadian piece of distribution. It makes things very complicated, like hugely complicated for them. And it makes our films much less sellable and a lot less marketable in, an, in another weird best intentions paving the road to hell way, where by trying to keep things Canadian and by trying to have 
slightly restrictive rules on film financing, you wind up hobbling your Canadian filmmakers when it comes to bringing films to the international market because every single film that has been financed by Telefilm already has the Canadian territory spoken for. Canada is already sold. So if I take a movie to Netflix, they're like, okay, is the world available? And you have to be like, well, everything except Canada. And they go, huh, okay. So we need to find a way to release this movie worldwide, but carve out Canada and not have anything to do with that country. But we also need to coordinate with your local distributor who's going to be releasing it however the hell they want. It is a massive impediment to international sales and to having Canadian content play worldwide. A massive impediment. We could keep counting the ways in which the CanCon system that has developed over the years is imperfect, but its defenders will say that whatever its faults, the system has succeeded in doing the main thing it was created to do, ensure that CanCon gets made. Without the system, there are thousands of Canadian screen productions that would never have been produced. But is that still the case? In the age of the internet, Canadians can more easily create content without the government's help, and Canadian viewers aren't limited to a handful of TV networks. They can watch anything from anywhere at any time of day. They are no longer limited to whatever is on the airwaves. There's a whole world of content available online through platforms like YouTube, Twitch, and more. And I should probably disclose something here, I have a YouTube channel. I'm not in the partner program or anything, I only have 344 subscribers and I do not make any money from it. Nor do I have plans to. But ever since graduating from music school in 2007, I was intrigued by the idea of using this new online platform to create content. But instead, I focused my efforts on trying to find work and build a career in film music. You couldn't make money off of YouTube at the time. But other people are making a living off of it. Thousands of Canadians are making content online without the help of Telefilm or the CMF. In the spring of last year, many YouTubers took to their platform to voice their concerns about what this bill would mean for them. So many of us fear Bill C-11, a bill we did not ask for, do not need, and threatens the success we've already achieved. Bill C-11 implies vague changes to these platforms to prioritize Canadian content to Canadians, but it would in turn deprioritize Canadian content to an international audience. A big part of the concern for me, and I think a lot of people, is the people writing this law and proposing these regulations don't really understand how the internet works and how people create content on the internet. I mean, this is simply protectionism to protect legacy media again. I spoke with one online content creator to get a better sense of what it is he does and what this bill might mean to him. Yeah, so I'm Mickey Lajurovic. I go by Xwater Online, and I create digital gaming-related content, uh, mostly surrounding Nintendo games and doing very high-energy and very challenging content. The strat we got rolling right now seems like it's pretty good. Yes! Holy one, baby! Trick shot legend! Let's go! So... By utilizing YouTube, TikTok, Twitch, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all those platforms, I make a living creating content surrounding all my favorite games and finding new and interesting ways to kind of showcase them to people all over the world. You might not consider Mickey a creator in the traditional sense, but he's certainly an entertainer. Recently, he's been averaging about 400 viewers at any given time and has approximately 1,000 subscribers paying him every month on Twitch. His YouTube channel is nearing the 10,000 subscriber mark. 
He's also trying new things on the platform, taking risks to find innovative ways to engage with his audience. I spent four to six months of my surrounding stream time and, and weekends developing an idea that kind of was a show designed around showcasing five games every other week. And it's a really high production value show that ended up getting a lot of custom branding done and getting a lot of technology developed for it. So it was a massive undertaking. Mickey and thousands of new digital creators like him have been building a whole new kind of Canadian screen entertainment industry without any involvement from the Canadian government. But C11 could change that. If the video platforms he uses, YouTube and Amazon, are forced to pay into the CanCon system, will that help creators like him? If so, he's up for it. If something like this is available and that's possible, I can imagine an extra investment into my content would allow me to spend a little bit more on outside help in getting YouTube videos and other things moving and running and going and would be able to offset some of my workload outside of the streaming side of things so that I could do more in that. So if there was some sort of way for me to look for a fund or a grant or something, I wouldn't be closed off to it. So I asked Valerie if the CMF had any plans for developing programs for online creators. I mean, that's exactly what we're looking at. We're going to put together a small little working group consulting of, of individuals from those communities that are working on those platforms so that we get something right. But what we've heard from both TikTok and YouTube, that creativity is certainly not the issue from those creators. It's resources to be able to do the things and also business skills. We'll be starting in 2023. We're having the meetings in early spring, and then we'll have something formed up by way of an actual accessible program, probably by summer or maybe early fall. It'll be a small program to start, but we have money allocated for that in our 2023-2024 budget, which was just approved by our board. She wasn't able to provide precise numbers at this point in time, but said that it would be modest to start and will depend on what the needs are. Not every digital creator in Canada finds himself playing video games. Some film themselves putting on makeup, some cook, some respond to other people's videos. Not much of it would be considered cinema, but maybe some of it will be. There is an explosion of creativity, the editing and the comedy and the graphics and the text and the collage work of online video. It may be looked down upon by some cinephiles, but hey, so was David Cronenberg. Mad may be funded by Telefilm now, and Andrew is currently developing a TV series with Bell, but they started out online, and Andrew thinks that a better CanCon system would stop overlooking young people who create and upload popular videos. I think there are so many popular digital creators out there that have large audiences that the Canadian media industry overlooks completely because there's just a huge disconnect, right? Like, we understand that most of the people that work in the, the Canadian film system are very old, right? So, you know, they're not even aware that a lot of these TikTokers or YouTubers exist, and they're making their own living. They're doing everything on their own terms, by themselves, but they're not being included in the larger system in any way because of that disconnect. Matt also feels that supporting digital creators could be a really good model. This sounds great to me. This sounds great to me. If these people already are partnered and they have a voice and a platform and they're doing something, even with like 5,000 subscribers, this I think is a great model. The CanCon system has its flaws, but ultimately Matt thinks it's worth fixing. Fundamentally, we're so lucky we have it. It's a miracle that the government is willing to parse off like $200 million a year just for filmmakers to make movies. So of course that's great. 
And yes, there's going to be successes all the time. My point is that I think we need to criticize these institutions to be better and to serve a more forward-thinking cultural mandate than a kind of conservative, let's keep what we have, let's maintain a status quo as they have been doing more or less since the 80s, I would say. So no, I love this system in that it exists at all. But I think that there's some key changes we could make to have it do what it's saying it's going to do, which is to create and maintain a cultural identity for this country internationally. For Andrew, that might mean a more inclusive approach to funding and production, focusing on stories of people of color. Historically, we don't feel included in the Canadian fabric of society, right? Like it's such a large part of the fabric of our culture that, you know, people of color make, what is it? It's like 20 some odd percent of the population are people of color. But in 20 years, it's going to be almost half of the Canadian population. If we're not being reflected on screens, like you have to include us in this Canadian system and Canadian culture. And then we will feel, you know, galvanized to actually support the need for Canadian content. Valerie feels that Bill C-11 will go a long way to helping make the system better. The streamers are already here. They come into the country. They choose what they want to make. They hire primarily service producers to do their work. Generally speaking, and it changes every month, they take all of the intellectual property rights for that content because they pay for it and they take that content. They love our country. They love our locations. They love our creative crew, our talent, you know, our directors, all the rest of it. And they make the money on that show through worldwide distribution. It's a great model, you know, and it's a fantastic model for them. And Canada certainly benefits from it. But the streamers also access Canadian resources. They access the services production tax credit. They access everything the country's got to offer. All we're saying is the streamers should keep doing what they're doing, no question. But with the rise in service production, the downward pressure on not just our broadcast system, but our whole domestic market that can't get locations, can't get crew, are we in the business in Canada of doing our own domestic storytelling or not? When speaking at the primetime conference just before the Senate finished its final reading of Bill C-11 last month, Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez said, I think that we're in a good spot and this should become reality in the next few days, if all goes well next week. It has now been over a month since he said that, and the bill has still not received royal assent, the last step before legislation becomes law. This bill could be a turning point, a new era in the system of CanCon. In many ways, it seems to be maintaining an outdated model and system that is producing film and television that English Canadians aren't even watching. And yes, the CMF is developing new programs for online creators. But this is only after people have been doing it on their own for years already. And if we just keep doing the same thing over and over because it's worked well enough in the past, ignoring changing technologies and habits and what people actually want, well, how did that work out for BlackBerry? That's your Canada Land for this week. Listen, you know when you're having a good day and you just catch a glimpse of yourself in the mirror and you think like, ah, damn, I'm looking all right today. I have that kind of a day as a podcaster. I, I've been having days lately where I think, damn, like our, our stuff is good. Like we're really giving people good value. If you think so too, if you value the conversations and the stories you hear on our podcasts, support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for 
our journalism. And as a supporter, you're going to get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, early releases and bonus content, our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merchandise, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. More than anything, you will be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You'll be making podcasts like this free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can email me. I'm at jesse at canadaland.com. I read them all. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com. This episode was reported by Tristan Capicione, who is also our audio editor and technical producer. Our managing editor is Annette Ejofor. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by So-Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, which is included with Prime. Prime.